Welcome to The Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. It is totally right and fair for people to be frustrated with violence. We need to have a much better imagination about how we address violence in this country rather than just as a response to policing. That was Nick Turner. Nick is president of the Vera Institute of Justice. Vera is a think tank that focuses on criminal justice reform issues. I also sit on Vera's Reform Advisory Council. I'm having the conversation with Nick now because I think the discussion about criminal justice reform is important. And I think it's important because rule of law and our ability to live together without devolving into a purge and killing each other depends on people trusting our institutions to work fairly for everyone. And it depends on our believing that those institutions will give everyone the benefit of the same presumptions about freedom and liberty and innocence to which our Constitution entitles us. So I think we have to have an honest and fair conversation about how we want those institutions to better serve us. And I think we have to have that conversation in a way that doesn't turn all of the participants into Facebook memes. I mean, that's sometimes fun, but it is not effective. And right now we are talking about something that is really key foundational to our ability to live together. So I invited Nick on to start that conversation, at least here, because I thought that he could provide some perspective and depth and answer questions that I have and that other people have. He's also a brilliant person and a great friend of mine. So here I am with Nick Turner. Welcome, Nick Turner. Thank you for joining me. So we're in the middle of this moment where more people than I've ever seen are really mobilized around the issue of law enforcement and fairness and racism and policing. Does this moment feel different to you? The moment feels really different. I mean, I think it's probably something that folks can tap into and understand. Think about this, that we have gone through three and a half months four months of being sequestered alone um, because of the the pandemic. So there's a lot of pent up energy. At the same time, one of the things that we've seen with the coronavirus is this massive, massive disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. So the disparities, you know, people used to talk about the pandemic as being this thing that was the great equalizer. It actually is not the great equalizer. It is the great revealer of racial and ethnic disparities in this country. And so people have seen it. They see that every day in terms of people getting sick in terms of body bags. And then you get to late May and the murder of George Floyd, which is an incredibly painful video to watch, but not the first video that we've seen. You know, we've seen ones of Eric Garner and of Philando Castile and of Alton Sterling and many, many other people. And that video emerged at a moment when I think there was a ton of energy and frustration um, and understanding of the racial unfairness that exists in this country. And after years of seeing these videos, and, and so that exploded into the biggest protests that we've seen in this country since 1968. I mean, I think some estimates are that 16 to 25 million people hit the streets to protest racism and uh, and racist policing. And so this is, it is very different. 
I think we see it in the statistics too. The level of support that people see for uh, Black Lives Matter has um, increased significantly. The level of recognition that racism is indeed a core problem in our society, that has gone up substantially. And the concern about American policing has gone up. And so I don't think it's a sugar high. I actually think it's here to stay. And it's unlike any other time that I've been working on these issues. What do you say to the people who still don't see it as an issue that is uh, uniquely focused or concerns Black people? So for instance, when uh, CBS reporter Katherine Herridge asked President Trump about and I, I'm going to quote her question, it was, why are African-Americans still dying at the hands of law enforcement in this country? The president's response, and I'll quote his, so are white people, so are white people. What a terrible question to ask. So are white people. More white people, by the way, more white people. Obviously, that's the president, but I'm going to go so far as to say that he's not alone in that. Um, everybody may not be as open about that sentiment, but I think that there are plenty uh, who would embrace that. What do you say to those folks? I would say you're wrong. I mean, look, white people are harmed by the, the police. There's no, there's no denying that. But when you look at the statistics that are available to us, I'll give you an example. The Washington Post has created a database and it's kept track since 2015 of, of um, people who have been shot by the police. And the Black people are three times more likely to be shot by the police than white people. And if you then cut it for just people who are unarmed, they're four times more likely. So factually, the inhabitant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is just plain wrong. And uh, the disparities are plain and indisputable. But a lot of folks would say the reason we're more likely to be arrested or uh, shot is because we're committing more crimes. What's the data on that? Well, I think that is a common belief and a common refrain. I mean, I think that that is a more complicated picture than that. This country has a history of propping up propaganda and myth and imagery around Black criminality. I mean, we have seen it for centuries in this country where Black skin has been has been equated to criminality. I will let's move up to the most recent past and think about. The presidential election of 1988, when Michael Dukakis is, uh, you know, 17 points ahead and George Bush drops a, an ad with Willie Horton, which is meant to generate fear and a, a sort of a reptilian reaction to this portrait of a black man rapist who comes out and, and the election turned. And think about the way other recent historical figures have talked about super predators and gang bangers. And there's like so much here to talk about the what is really the imagery of black criminality that we are all conditioned. I mean, we're conditioned to, to just accept that as a reality. There are, you know, you can look at the, you know, statistics around arrests. Black people are arrested for drug possession at a rate of um, somewhere between two and a half to four times more than white people. Is that because black people use drugs more? No, it's not. Because when you look at the statistics around drug use, it, it is equal ac across races. You can look at how law enforcement, where law enforcement chooses to enforce laws. 
and it is typically in poor, predominantly uh, minority neighborhoods. And that means that you're going to have a high proportion of uh, arrests of Black people. So it is a far more complicated picture, but it taps into really the mythos that exists in this country, which is that Black skin equals criminality. We've got these different reform movements. I think that you cannot make policy based on a hashtag or a social media meme. And a lot of people don't really know what a lot of folks are talking about when they say defund the police or abolish the police. There is a history of police departments being used to chase Black people. I mean, as slave patrols, that is part of the history. However, we are right now in the 21st century. Uh, You and I are old enough to remember the Public Enemy song uh, that was about the police not coming on time. 911 is a joke in your town. You know, they're late. They don't come when I need them. So that was the refrain of the 80s and 90s. So here we are now in a different moment in history where the issue is the police are always in our town. They are always policing us. Um, They're not giving us a break, which is leading to the defund the police movement. Now, can you explain what is your understanding and what is the best definition you can give us of the defund the police movement? Tanya, let me start with one thing, because you actually mentioned the root of American policing in, in slave patrols. And sometimes people will have a tendency to say, well, yeah, okay, like that was 150 years ago. That's not now. But it's a through line, so that exists. And then police forces for um, the decades that followed were the ones that enforced Jim Crow laws, that enforced um, post-Reconstruction um, laws that where Black people were arrested and then and then sold to private industry in the South and convict leasing schemes because there was no labor market. And then all through the 20th century, any laws where there was de jure um, discrimination, that was enforced by the police. That brings us up to modern times where you still look at the enforcement of, of current laws, whether it's drug possession or whether it's public order things. So in New York, for example, 85% of the public order offenses, uh, you know, so urinating in the street or, you know, things that don't quite rise to the level of misdemeanor, 85% of the people who are, who are given a summons are black and brown. It was the same thing with stop and frisk. So you see this, the racism and racial disparity exist throughout the history. I mean, it just, it is a through line. So that's an incredibly important thing to, you know, to understand. So I don't want to be dismissive of the history, but you do recognize that in 21st century America, there is some need for some law enforcement institution of some Mm -hmm. sort. You would agree with that? Yes. So look, here's the thing. What is modern American policing? Modern American policing is is an entity that we decided to commit a set of social and economic problems to be the to be the the responder to so we have you know in american policing and just to get clear on the numbers 115 billion dollars is spent every year on american policing if you think about what it means for cities most cities la where you are about 50 percent of the general fund for the city of la goes to law enforcement so we're spending a ton of money on law enforcement there's a tendency in law enforcement both to overreach um, and over-enforce. So what do I mean by that? In America, there are 11 million arrests a year. 
Guess what percentage of those are for violent crimes? 5%. Of the 11 million people who are arrested in the United States every year, only 5% of those arrests are, are for, for violent, violent crimes. crimes. So the imagery that we have of, you know, shootings, violence on the street, we need to have the police force, the size and scope that it is right now, being able to be out there and address it. That statistic points out that is simply not so. There have been studies that have looked at the deployment of police and the use of their time. There was something that was in, uh, you know, I think the New York Times about a month ago in the upshot column. And the average in three cities was that in terms of the time that they spend, 4% of their time handling violent crime. More than half of their time spent handling traffic infractions and non-criminal matters. That's an amazing thing. 4% of of, of their day is spent on violent crime, half of it on non-criminal and traffic infractions. And so then we have to ask ourselves, why are we asking two cops in a patrol car with guns to be addressing a bunch of conduct and many things that there might be other people who are better suited for? So we've got an incredibly expensive system that is rooted in racism and that has expresses itself in racist ways even today, and it's not just about a few bad apples and individuals, it is using the tool that is available to it, which is arrest and enforcement, and it's using it in an overbroad way. So let's begin there to then talk about what we mean when we say defund the police. And I think what people are saying is policing as it is currently situated, as the entity that is meant to solve all socioeconomic problems in in America, and is doing it the way it is, we don't need it anymore. We need a different commitment to public safety. And it's not just about law enforcement providing public safety. It is about a broader array of responses, public health responses, community responses, and yes, policing for certain things. And we want that policing to be done differently, but it should be much more narrow. And so I think that defund the police is it's provocative and it riles people. It also motivates people. But I think what we're really talking about is a right-sized, reinvented notion of delivering public safety. And it shouldn't all be about $115 billion going to law enforcement agencies, but rather taking some of that money, putting it to other things, and making sure that we get them out of the business of doing things that they aren't well suited to do. Is then the narrative that I kind of set forth when we started this part of the conversation, you know, I invoked the public enemy song of our youth about uh, police not being there Uh to protect Black victims. Do you think that's kind of overstated? No, I think that that's there too. I mean, I think that both things can exist. When you think about the calls from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue right now, attacking the protesters and the idiot Democrats for wanting to defund the police. That is the very same dog whistle, like Willie Horton, super predator stuff that we have seen for centuries, talking mostly to white Americans who are fearful of black criminality and believe that police are the key to keeping these dangerous criminals out of their neighborhoods and doing bad things. That is not speaking to black folks in cities who I think actually, to your point, in many regards, underserved by the police, where the police have devalued their lives and so are unresponsive 
um, where they have really low clearance rates for very serious offenses. Um, and so I think both things actually exist, that you have a, a, a massive policing structure that is overbroad and hungry and 95% of the things that arrest people for are nonviolent things. And then it is also insufficiently attentive of what black folks need in, in cities where there are some, where, you know, dangerous things do happen. Let's talk about defunding because, again, when we consider a lot of these local officials, um, some of whom are African-American, they're not all speaking with one voice on this. Right. Uh, Muriel Bowser in D.C. is actually proposing an increase to her budget. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago uh, has indicated that she's going to leave the issue of whether or not police officers are in schools to local districts to determine. Here are people who are on the front lines who are saying the issue is not taking money out of this police budget. We need more money so we can train officers to better serve the communities. What's your response to that? That's a great question. I mean, I think the the preface that I want to add, Tanya, is that Black folks wanting safety and wanting to be protected from violence, we have existed in society where the formula has been, well, the only way you get that is by arresting people, by putting more cops on the street, by having them engage in certain kind of tactics than by, you know, incarcerating people. And so we have, as a society, created a very simple formula. You want public safety, that's what you got to get. But the fact of the matter is that there are a far broader set of strategies that enable public safety to be, to be delivered. So there's violence interruption, which is to, even before the cops are called, you know, to have networks of folks on the street who are community-based, who know the networks of young people who might have guns and know the beefs and are able to talk them down and to de-escalate and put ceasefires in effect. And because they're credible. And that's not a response of the state. That is a response of a nonprofit group. So I'm, I use that as an example to say that it is totally right and fair for people to be frustrated with violence. We need to have a much better imagination about how we address violence in this country rather than just as a response to policing. In terms of Mayor Bowser and or Lori Lightfoot, I would say that they are in this moment where, you know, what we've seen in some cities in the past six months is an uptick in in shootings. I mean, we're experiencing it here in New York. And so there's worry about that. That gets demagogued by the media, by police unions. So that increases the level of concern, making it hard for elected officials to then say, well, in the face of this uptick in shootings, I'm going to um, you know, reduce the police budget. So that may not be a profile in, in courage, or it may be that both of those mayors actually don't really have faith that there are other ways of delivering public safety above and beyond policing. But what I really think it's about is the power of police unions and their ability to, frankly, demagogue these issues and to spend money in ways that make politicians terrified of crossing them. In New York City, we have seen crime drop. We have seen arrests drop. And I'm I'm talking over a a multi-year period you know, felony arrests, misdemeanor arrests, summonses, stops and frisks, all of those are going down and the police budgets are going up. So those things have gone down, let's say roughly 20% in the last five to six years, police budgets have gone up 20%. And that's the power of the police union. 
taking care of its jobs and its people and its pensions. And I'm, you know, as a matter of economic justice, I'm in favor of unions, but I think that police unions are disserving the cities that they work for. And, and so my guess, not knowing the facts of D.C. And, and Chicago, is that there's a lot of that going on. I'm a little concerned that we're not fully appreciating the fear that a lot of people have and the legitimate fear. So even if there aren't as many violent people, what about the fact that the violent people that are there now, they're more mobile, they're a little more bold? I'm worried about a law enforcement model where somebody shows up to a violent scene and isn't doesn't have a gun. What do you say to people who feel even less safe than I do? You know, is a social worker going to really calm a situation down? First of all, you're not unlike the vast majority of Americans who think that we are living in the highest crime times in this country, which we're not. We're actually close to the nadir, uh, like a 30-year nadir. You know, crime rates have been dropping in this country since the early 90s. No one ever believes it. Because the way I think media and and others, the stakeholders of the system tend to stoke fear because it leads to the exact same conclusion that you which you uttered, which is that we need these folks. Like at all, we need the folks on the wall at all costs. But if you start from the perspective that cops are only spending four percent of their time on violent crimes and that only 5% of the arrests are for violent crimes, fine, like keep in place law enforcement that addresses those things and does it well and does it not as warriors, but as partners and guardians, you know, that they're well-trained and that they're well-hired. Let's not dispute that. Let's also think about the other things that we can do, which Americans don't have a ton of imagination for, which is, can we respond to violence in a different way? Sure, we can get at the root causes, which is that there's a ton of trauma out there and we can have trauma-informed care that's provided to many people that live in these, in these communities. We can invest in the things that make people generally safe and healthy, that good schools, summer jobs, employment, the kinds of things that eradicate the the pressure of poverty and the distress that is associated with that. And then we can get cops out of the businesses that they shouldn't be in. Why do we have cops in schools? Why do we have cops responding to substance use or to mental or physical distress or traffic when police chiefs and officers themselves say, we don't want to be social workers. So then don't send them to these things. You know, you can have a 911 system where people call up and they say, you know, there's a distressed individual. He's on the sidewalk. He's shouting and he seems to be incoherent. And you can do what Eugene, Oregon has. They have a program called Cahoots. And this is now being duplicated in a number of cities that sends EMS person and then a trained mental health counselor to de-es- to investigate and to de-escalate and then to get that person to the services that they need. If they are decompensating because they have a behavioral health problem, they don't need to go to jail. They need to get help. If that call were to come into 911 and they're saying, like, this person is waving around a gun, then the police are the ones who are dispatched. So I think that we have to disaggregate these things. But the most important thing to understand is that, yes, we can, we're not giving up on the notion of a, of a respectful, protective law enforcement as we understand it. It should just be a much smaller part of the public safety response. Because if you do that and you take care of the root causes and you, and you take care of people's safety and health without 
to folks in a car with guns, that actually produces public safety. And we've just, and, but here's the thing that's hard in America and, but we should all be reminded about, we saw in the COVID pandemic, how underinvested we are in public health. And so we don't have the imagination to really believe that you could invest in that correctly and and that that could serve people well, because that just hasn't existed in this country. And so we have to make fundamental divestment decisions from law enforcement and then invest in smarter, more effective responses. And I think it is indeed possible to do that. Hi, everybody. Just a quick break to say thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. And if you're enjoying this conversation and you're looking forward to all of the great ones I have coming up, I would so appreciate it if you go on to iTunes, give me a five-star review, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and family on social media, on email if they're not on social media, even text, share it how you can, and I'll really, really appreciate you for it. Now, back to my conversation with Mo Kelly. Is there any room for compromise with unions as an institution? Well, you know, up until the most recent period of time, you know, the last few months, I would have said no, that the the unions are so powerful and have elected officials running so scared that the footprint of policing is going to remain bigger and that they will always get the budget and the headcount that they want. But I do think that we have arrived at a point where we are starting to see real differences. So in the past few months, many of the things that lease unions um, hold dear, I mean, so we've seen in a number of cities budget cuts. I think that they are, you know, insufficient. I think they're generally superficial and some of them are really quite pretend, but we've seen them in New York. We've, you know, we're seeing it in LA Portland and other, you know, and other cities, but we're also seeing a rollback of some accountability protections for police that were put in place by their unions. So there's a law here in New York that we call it 50A, but it basically says that police officer misconduct records are sealed. Um, So you never know when a police officer, if he or she has engaged in misconduct, you can't get at the records to see whether that happened as it did with Derek Chauvin like 17 times in 19 years. And that law was just repealed. That's good for accountability because if there are bad apples, then we should know and we should and then there are other laws where, for instance, if a if a police officer is engaged in misconduct, um, that it's been written into the collective bargaining agreements that that officer cannot be interviewed by investigators for 48 hours. Why? Well, because that gives that officer time to lawyer up and get the story straight. And then as a, and then as a result, the prosecutors are unable to pursue prosecution if they wanted to, an investigation. So I, I think what I'm saying is that the power in the unions is pretty substantial I was not particularly hopeful about it, the ability to sort of break break that up until May. You said that as a matter of economic justice, you support unions, yet you criticized union-backed protocols that would, for instance, uh, prohibit interrogating a police officer until such time as he has the opportunity, as you put it, uh, to lawyer up. But 
we're lawyers uh, as a matter of due process. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? I mean, you're certainly not suggesting that police officers don't have the same due process rights to lawyer up as everybody else. No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. Here's the distinction that I make with police unions and with corrections unions is that they're in the business of representing the workforce in a system that has the ability to take life, um, has the ability to take liberty, has done it to such an extent in this country. We cage so many people in this country that, you know, so here's a statistic that few people recognize, that one in every two American family has had uh, an immediate family member incarcerated in the last 10 years. That's insane. So we're, they are so in the business of propping up this business of mass caging. <laughs> I make the distinction solely on the basis of that. And then the way these places protect their jobs and their benefits is to engage in the demonization and fear mongering and dog whistle tactics that has, I mean, they're some of the, the, biggest supporters of that that make elected leaders run scared. And they've got incredibly generous benefits for their people. I mean, you can look in like in any state that is unionized, you will you will find that first responders have um, the most generous benefits and pensions of everyone. And their work is hard. I get that. But I resent the political power being used to keep a massive superstructure propped up and running for economic benefit that has so many burdens imposed on so many people. I just think that that's that's fundamentally distinguishing. Can you help us distinguish between the defund the police movements and then the abolish the police movement? I think there are abolitionists there who probably have a, a vision of actually abolishing law enforcement in its entirety. I think that there are people who say we need to dismantle the police as we know it. And so what is it that we say when we say as we know it? We mean as as an overreaching, over-enforcing entity that causes a lot of harm and to reimagine what the delivery of public safety looks like. And that might include law enforcement. I think that that it should include some element of law enforcement for sure, Um, but it will include many other things. Rather than treating law enforcement, the police, as the single unitary deliverer of public safety, we need to think of it as one prong of a strategy to deliver public safety and get it in its right lane and then invest in the other lanes. Why do we have police in schools? Why are we sending police who are not well-trained to address decompensating individuals who have a behavioral health problem? Is it possible for us to actually send differently trained people? And if there is a risk of violence or if the the call for service has mentioned knife or gun, fine, send the police. But in the absence of that, I mean, so here's the statistics like that if you are, you know, that if if you're black and you're you have a mental health problem, behavioral health problem, and the police have been called, your chances of being shot are 14 times higher than if you're white. No one should have any problem believing that statistic. And I'll give two words to my listeners, two words, Dylan Roof. 
Dylan Roof shot up a church full of African-American worshipers, wanted to start a, a race war, managed to be taken into custody alive. So, And they bought him a meal at Burger King. And he got food on the way. I think there's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but I think it's really important that we continue to underscore and sort of not let people ignore what are some really obvious distinctions. If you can explain how it is Dylan Roof, after committing a mass murder and wanting to incite a race war, was able to be taken in for a sandwich, and George Floyd, who was accused of passing a counterfeit $20 bill, ends up dead, or Breonna Taylor ends up dead, or frankly, Ahmaud Arbery, who's pursued by people who don't have a badge, and they don't even get charged. Or Philando Castile, who or Philando was Castile. Like broken taillight, or Eric Garner here in New York. I mean, people, I mean, the list goes people on. People say the list goes on and on. But the thing that strikes me powerfully about all of those examples, though, I keep getting back to this 11 million arrests number and this notion of overreach. Is you know, everyone talked about Eric Garner saying, "I you know, I can't breathe, I can't breathe." I heard most powerfully what he said before that, which is like, why are you all always on me? I mean, Mm. the persistent harassment of this black man by the police and what, why did they step up to him then? Because he was selling Lucy's and sitting on a crate selling Lucy's, you know, single cigarettes. That is municipal tax violation in New York City. So if you think about law enforcement, which is trained to enforce, maybe um, trained to be more warrior type as opposed to guardian, partner to community. And they're enforcing all of these little things, every single little thing. And we just named all these people has the potential to result in in injury um, and death. And then if you're black and the way people look at you is that you're criminal, I mean, think about like the first month of our, you know, when we were all on lockdown and there are these protests in Lansing, Michigan, (laughs) and all these white folks like strapped with their AR-15s stepping up into the capitals. And imagine, (laughs) imagine black people doing that. Well, we don't have to imagine it because when black people armed themselves like that in California, when the Black Panthers did that in California, then Governor Ronald Reagan became very pro-gun control. Gun control in California happened because Black people in California started to carry guns. Uh, What does an ideal police force look like to you? So I guess I would say the ideal strategy for public safety begins with a recognition that investment in the kinds of things that reduce community distress that provide opportunity. So again, education, housing, and health. So you would want to see, you want to see a government entity invest in those things because those are the things that actually produce safety and reduce harm. So that's the beginning of the public safety conversation. I think you want to think about the kinds of things that people call 911 for and answer the question, who are the right responders? And for things like addressing homelessness or again, or, you know, behavioral health or physical distress, safety and safe climate in schools, that there are others that are better suited to respond to those kinds of things. And so you would want to invest in those. So if I were a mayor, I would want to invest in homeless services more. I would want to invest in the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene more. 
Um, I would get want to get the police out of that. And then I would want to, you know, invest in a much smaller police department that responded to the things that are really only appropriate for a police department to respond to. And that that police department needs to be accountable to the public. It needs to be well-trained as guardians, not as warriors. So, you know, not engaging in 700 stop and frisks a year as the NYPD did. The officers need to be trained to be not just focus on arrest enforcement and meeting quotas, but to uh, engage in problem solving, to be walking the beats, to like know, to be able to know the environments in which they, they work. And they need to have body cameras. And, the, and so the idea of reforming that, inst- that smaller institution and training it well um, and hiring the right people is incredibly important. And I think that's the formula for public safety. So I very intentionally dodged your question. You said, what does the right police force look like? And I said, I'm not answering that. What about these folks who are constantly calling 911 on people? There's been a big movement to make it a crime. It's already a crime, by the way, to make a false police report. Mm -hmm. But there's been a lot of attention on kind of heightening uh, or maybe lessening some of those standards, making people who make these calls subject to prosecution. What do you think about that? So um, I can't remember the gentleman's name, the birder in in New Cooper. Right. You know, when the Manhattan DA prosecuted the woman who called the police falsely on him, because that is a a crime. Um, He said, I'm not going to take part in that. She's been publicly humiliated. Um, She lost her job. She lost her dog. She is um, notorious. And I don't see, if the DA wants to do that, that's fine. But they're going to do it without me, because I don't see the need for that kind of punitiveness. And I think that that is incredibly powerful. That is a rejection of the sort of vengeful, retributive expectation that we often, or, or, or you know, the desire that we wish to express with criminal prosecution. And Mr. Cooper just said, I'm not having a part of that. And I think that if more Americans did that and really thought about whether what we want to do is to, is to prop up a system that flows every grievance we have, if we could lose that reptilian instinct, Um, we'd all be in a much better place. You call it a reptilian instinct. We've had this conversation for years and years and years because, as you know, and I'll be very candid, I have a little bit of that instinct. Um, I don't think that I necessarily would be as magnanimous as Mr. Cooper in that situation. I, I think that people want not simply to prop up the system. They want somebody who has come for them inappropriately or improperly or... Uh, violated their right in some way, they want them to be taken to task. Because especially if you're in a situation where you're subject to that, like you want justice. People want accountability. And I think the question is, does the system we have deliver accountability? I don't think it does. I don't think it does. How does it deliver accountability? I mean, we have people, you know, so they get arrested and then that is their whatever, their debt to society, they're arrested or they're incarcerated. People who are incarcerated end up returning to prison or jail at astonishing rates because, because they're mistreated, they're put in terrible conditions. 
and they don't return to society better able to succeed or better able to, you know, have paid their debt and then be fully contributing members of society. So I, I guess I think like as a matter of passion, maybe it is satisfying for people, but I think if you talk to a lot of people who are um, harmed by criminal conduct, they will say, it's the only option that is offered to us. There's nothing else. So in the absence of that, yeah, I guess I'll, uh, you know, fine, I'll testify or yes, I want this. But we as a society have not offered any set of alternatives that provide some restoration, some healing and some accountability. And so, yeah, when you've got a really limited menu, you go to the restaurant and you, you open the the menu and there's like one offering and you're hungry, that's what you're going to eat. Before we go, I just want to touch briefly on the impact of COVID on jails and on inmates. Uh, There are some compassionate releases. I know in a lot of jurisdictions, people with 180 days or less uh, in some cases are being released because the pandemic is, as I understand it, really spiraling out of control um, in jails and prisons. It is. So the California Judicial Council has promulgated a rule that would eliminate bail uh, in all but the most serious offenses and many offenses. And as a result of that, so this goes back to accountability and I think what annoys people. I, I shared an article with you, Nick, about a man in California, in Glendora, He was arrested and released for stealing cars and other property three times in a 12-hour period, three times. The police could never hold him because of the new bail restrictions. So they arrest him. He's done. He does it again. He's done. He does it again. All of this is in a 12-hour period. I I shared the story with this person because it's an example in my mind of, look, you know, no, he didn't kill anybody. It's not violent. But I am really annoyed, Mm -hmm. and I am annoyed as somebody who I consider myself uh, an ally in the reform movement, even though I I don't necessarily uh, agree with all of what's being proposed across the board. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I've supported Vera's work for many years. I'm on the Reform Council. I am so proud of what you and Vera do to ensure fairness and what you've been doing long before uh, people have been focused on it in the way that they are now. But when I read a story like this, like this guy who does, he is stealing cars and stealing stuff for people three times in 12 hours, he's arrested, he can never be held. I'm annoyed. Now, I think if somebody of my instincts is annoyed, you got to think that the folks who are a little further away from us on, you know, in the political aisle are going to think that this is just outrageous. So, what do we do with this? This isn't, I, I don't think this is about being reptilian. It's not about not having imagination. It's about seeing somebody who really doesn't give a good gosh darn and being mad about it. Yeah. So I guess I would say that let's stipulate that that is um, worth being annoyed about, but then say that that is one data point. And of course, the story that gets written First of all, there is no system where you're not going to have exceptions to the rule. We're dealing with the imperfection of, of human beings, and so those stories will exist. But that's one that's one data point. And what you aren't reading stories about are the, you know, probably at this point, six, seven, eight thousand people who 
avoided going to LA Central Jail and as a result of that, went back to their homes and to their families, maybe maintained their job because they didn't have to worry about being locked up because they couldn't pay bail and avoided disease. You don't hear those stories because no one ever writes about them. But you can you can look at the statistics. I mean, we know that in LA in the first in the first two two weeks, the jail population actually dropped by three thousand because the right thing to do was knowing that jails and prisons are massive uh, disease vectors that are bad for the people who live there, but also for the people who work there and then for their families because they're not. I mean, they're porous. People are coming in and out and where you see some of the biggest cl- disease clusters, if you know now, is I think 10 of the top 15 in the country are jails and prisons. Wow. That just accelerates spread. So if you start there and you think like, that's what we want to prevent, and then we know that those facilities are incapable of preventing them, and then you know that the majority of people who are not going into them actually are, not, are doing no wrong. But yes, it's true that a few bad things happen, then you know, with armed with more data points, might arrive at the conclusion that, yeah, that's super annoying, but that doesn't undermine the policy and the commitment to keep people safe and to keep the communities around them safe. And and we get it because every rule has an exception and there are always going to be some bad actors and we got to take a little bit of the bitter with the sweet. So that's my response to that. You know what, my friend Nick Turner, I got to say, I have really, really enjoyed this. I think that you've done a lot to kind of dig into issues that people really only know via social media meme or hashtag. And I think they really deserve far more, far more attention and explanation than they sometimes get. So thank you for being a part of that discussion. And thanks also um, for remembering all of the great lessons I taught you when I was your teaching assistant and you were but a young runt and lost like the hypothetical <laughs> be skeptical um seriously tanya thank you i really i appreciate this i think it's a good opportunity to sort of peel back the layers and try to understand the the nuances which we simply don't have enough time to do so i appreciate your um intellectual curiosity and your and your desire to bring this this conversation out to many more people and your skepticism which is important to sort of un you know to unpack and better and help people better understand um, what's at issue here so thanks thanks for having me well we'll do it again my friend uh, you be well and be safe okay thank you you do the same That was Nick Turner from the Vera Institute of Justice. I will be returning to this issue again. And in the meantime, thank you for joining me. Be well and take care of yourselves. See you soon.